the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, welcome back. Mary Jolivitz once again sitting in for Seth Leibson. A good man, Seth Leibson. James Traub, in his 2016 book, John Quincy Adams, The Militant Spirit, said this of our sixth president. He would not bend on anything he considered a matter of principle, no matter what the possible cost to his own happiness. And with Adams, practically everything was a matter of principle. That was the opinion of the author, James Traub. Talk about ideological or character virtue that is found wanting today. There's a war being fought every day. It's a war being fought without tanks or battleships. You can actually watch it every day from your living room. Commentators, political pundits, self-professed experts offer an analysis, often without regard to the truth. In a world where common sense is on life support, you might actually have a difficult time distinguishing the good guys from the bad. If you bother to engage in critical thinking, and too few do, you'll readily understand that the truth for so many isn't self-evident, even though it ought to be. Both sides, all sides, use the same weapons, the weapons of choice or words, ideas. On your television sets, in newspapers, on social media, the Internet, and yes, of course, the radio as well. It's a war of words, a war of ideas. The currency is language. One might rightly suggest it's rather the corruption of language. A seasoned observer will understand. So would someone who had occasion to watch or listen to an audio clip that I'll want you to hear in a minute. Listen carefully and you'll understand how we are being played as fools, as idiots. A week ago on the 1st of February, under questioning from Senator Ted Cruz at the Senate Judiciary Committee, Judge Kenley Kayakato a Biden nominee to be United States District Judge for the Central District of California, was unable to say if racial discrimination was wrong. This is what happens when a superior intellect, Cruz, confronts a progressive judicial activist devoid of principle who doesn't have a leg to stand on. The tragedy is that there are more of them than there are of us. For every senator who understands critical thinking, there are two dozen who don't even know what it means. I want you to listen carefully right now. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to each of the nominees. Uh, Judge Cotto, I want, I want to start with you. Is racial discrimination wrong? Senator, our Constitution prohibits race discrimination discrimination on the basis of race. Okay, let me ask again, is racial discrimination wrong? Senator, as a judge, I, I, I don't um, deal with issues of morality or whether something... So you have no views on whether it's right or wrong? Senator, because that is an issue that is frequently litigated before the courts, pursuant to Canon 3 of the Code of Conduct... Okay, so why does the Constitution prohibit racial discrimination? Senator, I I think it's part of 
our Constitution and this nation's history of aiming for equal justice and uh, treating people, regardless of any protected class status, equally and fairly. So discriminating based on race violates, I think you just said, our Constitution's history of aiming for justice. Is that a fair characterization? Senator, our case law, uh, if you're talking about race discrimination under the law, yes, pursuant to Supreme Court precedent, uh, race discrimination under the law is prohibited. So you and I are both graduates of the Harvard Law Law School. Uh, We were there at the same time. Um, I don't think we crossed paths. We did not. Um, As you know, our alma mater is currently before the Supreme Court for its longstanding practice of discriminating against Asian Americans. And many top universities across the country have vicious discrimination policies against Asian Americans. Uh, They are reminiscent of the quotas against Jews that we saw these same schools impose in the 1950s. These schools believe that Asian Americans have been too successful academically and that if they allow students to compete based on merit, they'd have too many Asian Americans. And accordingly, Harvard and Yale and a number of other top schools in this country explicitly and brazenly discriminate against Asian Americans. Does that practice concern you? Senator Cruz, as you know, the Supreme Court recently granted cert in the case to which I think you're referring. Yes. And therefore, pursuant, again, to Canon 3, I am Okay, so you're going to decline to comment, so let's not talk about that case, but let's talk about what you've written. You know, I have to say I was astonished. Senator Grassley asked you about this article you wrote in law school, um, and your response was, well, gosh, I, I haven't read that. Um, in my experience, when people are nominated to be a judge, they do some preparation. Um, did you not reread it in preparation, or, or did the Biden team tell you don't read it because you don't want to answer questions about it? Senator, I read it, but again, the question that Senator Grass. Okay, okay, good. So you read it, so let's talk about it. I, I've read it sitting here, and, and I find it stunning. Look, there is a pattern of this administration nominating political activists and radicals to the bench, and they've done it for a year. And it's highly concerning. So I'm looking at what you wrote, your words. You describe, quote, the Reagan presidency represented the pinnacle of the counteroffensive launched by the guardians of the status quo. In the face of institutional resistance, activist movements redirected their focus from liberation to survival. Do you believe there was a, a threat to the survival of, of Asian-American groups under President Reagan? Senator Cruz, again, that was a law, a law review, book review. I'm just asking if you agree with the sentiment. You wrote it. Senator, I don't recall Do you agree with what it now? we were thinking. Do you agree with the sentiment now? Not what you were thinking then. I'm not asking your state of mind then. I'm saying... Do you agree with the words you wrote? Senator, again, I don't know what our purpose is. So I, don't, I don't want your purpose then. Today, as you listen to the words you wrote, do you agree with them or do you think I was wrong? Senator, without the complete context. Okay, let's read a little bit more then. You talk about the neoconservative view. And here's what you define an Asian neoconservative. As someone with an opposition to racism, so that's good but a commitment to ending affirmative actions. 
action programs. And you write, quote, the neoconservatives' narrow vision of success currently threatens to impose divisions within the Asian American community and among different ethnic groups. Emphasizing personal achievement and success as measured by the status quo, the Asian American neoconservative fails to acknowledge the shared history of oppression and then ties their individual success to the survival and liberation of all oppressed peoples. Judge Cotto, as I read this, what you're saying, and if you will permit me to use a more common uh, vernacular, you're saying that to be sufficiently woke, an Asian American must support policies that discriminate against Asian Americans. I got to tell you, that that doesn't make sense. Is my reading of what you wrote incorrect? Senator Cruz, again, we are talking about something that I wrote when I think I was a 23-year-old But you agree with it today. I'm not asking what you thought then. I'm saying today, as you sit here, as the Senate is considering you for a lifetime appointment as a judge, do you agree with what you wrote that Asian Americans, to be sufficiently liberated, must support discrimination against Asian Americans? Senator, without the complete context of that particular quote that you've excised, I read it to you. I cannot give you whether my opinion today, whether or not I agree with what I said as a 23-year-old law student. I would have to review the entirety. But you, you said you the, did review it before this hearing, right? Senator, correct, I, reviewed, I reviewed it briefly. This was quite some time ago, over 25 years. It's a very and short article. It, it's about six pages. I co-wrote it with a classmate of mine. Senator's time has expired. Senator, Senator, you're making me look bad, Senator. As I said before the, the audio, there's a war being fought every day. You can actually watch it, as I said, every day in your living room. In a world where common sense is on life support, you've actually seen evidence of the fact that the other side knows exactly what they're doing, and they're just playing us. It's this war of ideas. John Kennedy once said, the great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, pervasive, and unrealistic. We've got to pay attention because the other side has engaged us in war, and we're sitting back as bystanders doesn't work. We'll be right back. Hi, once again, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for Seth Leibson. I want to talk about Israel, my field of expertise. Despite the fact that Israel is viewed as one of the more democratic, liberal nations in the world, A majority of the nations in the United Nations vote against Israel every year in various resolutions. The average vote is usually 110 to 12. Now, mind you, there are 193 nations in the uh, United Nations today. Some abstain. Some don't show up. But when they do, the vote is, on average, 110 to 12. In, uh, In 2003... Professor Alan Dershowitz wrote a book called The Case for Israel. It was followed in 2004 with a documentary, The Case for Israel. Herein lies the problem. I wonder what would happen if I googled The Case for Sweden. 
were the case for England, the case for Italy, the case for Australia. If you Google it, there's nothing. And I realized that these were all Western-oriented uh, Western democratic nations. So I Googled instead the case for North Korea, the case for Saudi Arabia, the case for Syria, the case for Zimbabwe, the case for the Islamic Republic of Iran. Nothing. Nothing. But we have a case for Israel. It's part of an ongoing war to delegitimize Israel, to weaken it, to defeat it. My field of expertise is Middle East affairs. After 45 years that I've lectured about the conflict, I still stand perplexed. The world just doesn't get it, and quite purposefully. Tiny Israel, with two-tenths of one percent of the world's population and an even smaller portion of the world's landmass, seems the most important issue to most of the world. Pick up the New York Times. Pick up Lamarche. Pick up the Times of London. Despite Israel's remarkable accomplishments, it remains the subject of an, an obscene assault at the United Nations and international conferences by academia, by the electronic and internet media. Israel is a tiny country. From tip to toe, it stretches 260 miles. It is only at its widest point, 60 miles. And prior to its victory in 1967, was as narrow as nine miles. Consider this. Israel is smaller than Maricopa County. The Arab and Muslim states are 640 times the side of Israel, with 60 times the population. And yet, there's a never-ending debate about the question of Israel's defensible borders, often denying Israel the same right that every other nation is entitled to, to defend her citizens from such violent attacks, external and, yes, internal as well. We saw that again in May. Rockets falling upon Israel. 4,360 rockets fell in 11 days. And who did the nations of the world condemn? Who did the European Union condemn? Who did the United Nations condemn? They condemned the nation that was, the, that was receiving the rockets fired from Gaza. The United Nations announced last year, and they've reinforced this several times since, that it has opened a permanent investigation of the Jewish state. Now, take a quick look at the pathologically anti-Israel United Nations, where Israel is one of 193 nations, home to 57 Muslim entities, where there's no rule of law, where there are no free elections, where there is no freedom of speech, where corruption is endemic, protesters are jailed and tortured, where religious minorities are persecuted, and pedophilia is often state-run. Those are the nations that criticize Israel. Take a look at the nations, tyrannical and anti-democratic, who sit also as part of the United Nations Human Rights Council. And yet others, also savages, who sit as part of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. Do we take time to pause or cry right now? It really is a surprise that a significant majority of the resolutions introduced at the United Nations are all about Israel and all anti-Israel. Or is it? 
we've actually come accustomed to it, haven't we? In addition to the myriad of contributions to the modern world that Israel has made in science and technology and agriculture and medicine, Israel still needs to defend its right to exist. If you were unaware of that, then you simply haven't been paying attention. Israel has been credited with over a thousand breakthrough medical inventions just during the last half generation, while its enemies have invented the suicide bomb belt. Now, just imagine the savages are condemning the civilized. How is that progress? We live in a twilight zone. If there's any, if there's any understanding of this ongoing war, then you need to come to terms with the fact that there is a civilized people besieged by the savage, and we simply yawn. It is the twilight zone. Boy, I spend my time engaged in various aspects of Middle East affairs. I've been doing this for a very long time, for over four decades, as I mentioned. I delivered more of my fair speeches, my share of speeches. I've delivered a number of lectures, too many to be counted without a calculator. I've attended too many other lectures to claim that I'm sane. If it has anything to do with Israel and the conflict in the Middle East, I'm interested with an entire lifetime dedicated to this preoccupation of the generations-old Arab war against Israel, or the Muslim war against the Jews, I've come to understand, as I have argued many times before, that there is extant a small group of real experts. Enter the so-called experts. The list of so-called experts, once again, would require a calculated account. Sometimes it's not the knowledge of the facts that separates the experts from the non-experts or the so-called experts, but rather their ability or inability to analyze the facts, to interpret the facts. And yet, there exists a cottage industry of idiots who pay to offer expert opinion. No less the number of analysts, commentators, pundits, who guide us with uninformed, ignorant, and gullible audience material. They're too, with apologies to Robert Frost, they are on the road most taken. On television, in the internet, social media, academia, everywhere, these speakers speak against Israel. They're the bad guys. Israel, which was prior to the 1967 war that David has all of a sudden been transformed into the Goliath. The world today views Israel as the Goliath and the poor Arab armies that surround it, the Palestinians with their terrorists. They are all of a sudden David. It is subversion of language. I mentioned the language in the beginning. It's a subversion. It is what was uh, what Professor Rail Gene Isaac once referred to as semantic larceny. The other side has taken claim of a moral leadership and the dumb people in the Western world, and there are too many to count, actually buy it. Commercial break. We'll be right back. Hi. Welcome back. Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for Seth Leibson. Kafka, Franz Kafka once said, don't bend, don't water it down, don't try to make it logical, don't edit your own soul according to the fashion, rather follow your most intense obsessions mercilessly. It seems, I'd mentioned language, I want to maintain that as the thread that runs through this broadcast. It seems that there's a thread that runs most of the issues that we've talked today and it's about language. 
That common denominator is the use, or as I said earlier, the misuse of language and its role with political discourse. About a month ago, on Middle East Radio Forum, the show that I co-host with William Wolfe, I was talking about the bastardization of language in discussing the Middle East and Israel. I spoke about the nearly impossible task of trying to understand what is being said in Washington. It is for that reason why White House Press Secretary Jen Jen Psaki has a job. She's called on to explain what it is that the president was trying to say. Now, we borrowed a piece that was put together about six months ago by a group, Not the Bee. It's a tutorial, because we teach on this program. This is a tutorial, and I believe that we can all benefit from it. But I need you to pay attention. For only three minutes, it's well worth hearing. It does require some concentration, so please, stop whatever else you're doing, sit down, listen carefully. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, today I am going to teach you how to speak Bidenese. I'm going to teach you a few words, and then we'll get the proper pronunciation and context from the master himself, President Joe Biden. The first word I'm going to teach you today is nexnosrent. Nexnosrent. President Biden will now demonstrate this word for us. Donald Trump does pose an nexnosrent to this. The, it's not hypothetical. It's not hypothetical. Nexnosrent. Okay, the next word we've got is care. Badikef care. Say it. Try it. Badikef care. President Biden. Barack and I think it's a right for people to have badikef care. Next, my bus been wet. Now, a common error on this one is people put the stress on the wrong syllable. It's not my bus been wet. It's not my bus been wet. It's my bus been wet. Say it. My bus been wet. Next, we have a word that's that's much simpler. Palmist. Palmist. Can you say palmist? President Biden, palmist. And if we do, and I'm sure we can, we can proclaim the palmist with the palmist who wrote these following words. All right, now that you've got four words in the bag, we're gonna move on to a really complex Bidenese word. Do you think you're ready for it? You're gonna really have to pay attention here. Uh, This is sort of advanced level Bidenese. Very long word, okay? This is what it is. It's a very long word. Are you ready? Truender dash dubba depressure. Truender dash dubba depressure. One word, one word. Truender dash dubba depressor. Say it a little more quickly. Truender dash dubba depressor. Truender dash dubba depressor. President Biden, go. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize Truender dash dubba depressor. Truender dash dubba depressor. You guys did fantastic. You learned five new words in a new language, and now you know more Bidenese than you knew yesterday. What can I do but leave President Biden with the last word? So I'm going to say something outrageous. I have never been particularly poor at calculating how to get things done in the United States Senate. So the best way to get something done, if you if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to. Anyway, 
I'm, we're going to get a lot. I got hairy legs. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway, I'd mentioned earlier in the early part of this broadcast that when this country was uh, first founded in 1776 with two and a half million people, um, and uh, a year, excuse me, 12 years later with the Constitution, that we had the brilliance of the Hamiltons, of the Washingtons, of the Jefferson, of the Madisons, the Monroes, the Franklins, and everything else. From a small population, uh, smaller than the size of Chicago, that's what we had. And today, with 332 million people, you just heard someone who was chosen, so we're told, chosen as the leader of our country. We'll be right back. Hi, welcome back. Getting towards the end of the show, and I thank you for being with us. Mayor Jolovitz, with the pleasure of sitting in for Seth Leibson. I want to make reference to some of my notes. I gave a lecture last week or the week before, and it was uh, designed to sort of draw a symbiotic relationship between uh, this wokeism that we uh, seem to suffer here in the United States. In fact, I think it's something which has afflicted the Western world uh, and also Israel, uh, the connection uh, of what's going on. And there's, there's one way for me to sort of address an issue. It's an issue which uh, I lecture about quite frequently. It's the two-state solution. For those of you who don't know much about the Middle East or even those who think they do, the two-state solution is a disastrous proposition, a formula. It is a formula in which we are, in essence, uh, told the conflict will come to an end, and it might be exactly the opposite. In fact, it will be the opposite. I mentioned earlier the dimensions of Israel. Uh, if Israel is to withdraw to the pre-67 lines as others want us to, or want Israel to, uh, it would be nine miles wide at its waist. Uh, we saw what happens when the rockets came in from Gaza. This would be infinitely more dangerous. So let me bring uh, to mind something that I... You know, in order for me to make the connection, something that I penned uh, about 11 months ago was an op-ed. Uh, it's an op-ed that actually appeared both in the United States and in Israel. And it was titled, A Simple Solution, Let's Pay Them to Stop Murdering Us. Now, I referenced then a story that seemed so incredulous uh, that it just didn't seem that it could have been real. And yet it was. Uh, I'll refresh uh, your memories. It was about a Maryland prison convict's suggestion that we pay murderers to stop murdering. The story was treated by any rational mind as moronic. Imagine paying someone not to murder you. One must wonder what this has to do with Israel, of course, why I bring it up. Well, it is really a remarkable story, so let me give you the background. It was a newswise story that appeared in February of last year. It captured our attention, if only for a few fleeting moments. Perhaps because it was so absurd, so irrational, so illogical. And it seemed also so laughable that it conveniently traveled from the newspaper's front page to its last in virtually no time. But it was worth noting. Here's the short version. A Baltimore, Maryland convict and community activist, they call him, Tyree Moorhead, was released after spending 18 years in prison for second-degree murder. Tyree Moorhead came up with what he says is a solution to the city's soaring murder rate, namely to pay killers not to shoot people. Shocking, but not exactly novel, we find out. Deserving nothing more than our ridicule, this strategy, a radical strategy indeed, had been contemplated before in 2016 when officials in Richmond, uh, California, 
tested a program where they paid young, uh, young offenders for staying out of trouble in the endeavor to lower the city's murder rate. Now, rational minds would readily dismiss such nonsense. And yet, on a much grander scale, this thinking is the central philosophical cornerstone that underscores the argument made by so many for the establishment of a Palestinian state, a two-state solution. We recall that the pillow was founded in 1964, three years before Israel was labeled an occupying state. This important fact is willingly and willfully ignored. Let me offer a truthful translation. The PLO, claiming to, represent the, uh, claiming to represent the Palestinian people, was not founded to establish Palestine, but quite clearly to nullify the existence of Israel. A reminder of history. As evidenced by the fact that the territories were occupied illegally by Jordan for 19 years, between 1948 and 1967, with no tangible undertaking to fulfill the aspirations of the Palestinians to establish Palestine, it was axiomatically quite clear that it was about ending Israel. So let's not pretend. Those who call for the implementation of a two-state solution, a two-state illusion, a two-state delusion, they are the majority throughout the world. We have the enemies of Israel who support it because it means that Israel will be truncated. They know exactly what it portends. It would be an end to Israel. It would be reduced to some version of the pre-1967 borders, the infamous and indefensible Auschwitz borders, as Abi Ibn referred to them. They were, in essence, the 1949 armistice lines. So the pre-1967 borders and the 1949 armistice lines are one and the same. Now, there's another camp of people who support the two-state solution. They are the so-called friends of Israel, including Jewish organizations, most of them here in America. It's remarkable. We're being lied to. Israel, to its own detriment, often participates in this deceit. One doesn't have to be Mensa eligible to understand that 1964 preceded 1967 chronologically, that the establishment of the PLO three years before Israel became an occupying term, theirs, not mine, an occupier of territories, that alone was evidence enough of the scam in which they try to push their genocidal ideology. Still, they presented this not only as a PLO covenant, a charter, excuse me, which they presented, a mission statement of destroying Israel, they called it the covenant, suggesting, of course, that there was some kind of holy implication to it. The more, these are lies. These are lies. The PLO, of course, understood that its image was bad. So what did it do? It disguised its Palestinian intentions with a new thing, no longer the PLO, but rather they called themselves the Palestinian Authority, a facelift. And if you look at the Arab statements that emerge for domestic consumption, you'll understand that they still want to destroy Israel. And it's rather remarkable how seemingly intelligent people are so often not. In the same spirit, it's also quite incredible that otherwise reasonable thinking people are unable to reason. Correction so unwilling to reason, devoid of any ability to engage in critical thinking, even in its most elementary form, rational thought is conveniently sacrificed on the altar of politics. Once again, correction, the altar of political expedience. Any political experience has demonstrated that you sometimes have to believe what the others said. 
You have to believe it. But nonetheless, in September 13, 1993, the Oslo Accords were fashioned by an implacable enemy that wanted to pose as a peace partner. Yasser Arafat became a Peace Prize laureate because he promised to stop murdering Jews. It was a lie that we still live today. Arafat was simply channeling Benjamin Disraeli, who said diplomacy can be a weapon of war. In retrospect, such duplicity might have been foreseeable, but we didn't because we didn't engage in critical thinking. What was Oslo? What was the peace agreement? It was simple. We will stop murdering Jews if you give us a state of their own. Give us a state of our own. Remember Tyree Moorhead, the convict, community activist, who suggested we pay criminals not to murder in Baltimore? Well, he could well understand the brilliance of the Palestinians in Arafat. And that seems to be the formula today. Moorhead's formula and Arafat's formula were the same. We will stop murdering you if you pay us. And the Western world, certainly the United States, is in step with this insane formula called the Sioux State Solution. Those of you who thought that it sounded good, stop it. It's the enemy of Israel. Okay, last segment, only a few minutes. So much more to be said. Sometimes one has to find some kind of measure of humor in order to to explain things. There was a frightened man. This goes to the subject of do we really believe that the government is always doing what's in our best interest? The question is sort of rhetorical. And I'm talking about everywhere in Western society. Do they really do, they really do things that, we cur- uh, that uh, we're concerned about? A frightened man goes to the secret police and says, my talking rabbit. No, no. <laughs> Boy, did I blow that one. <laughs> My talking parrot disappeared. Why do you come here, the policeman asked. Why don't you go to the regular police? I will, the frightened man says. I'm just here to tell you that I disagree with whatever the parrot might say when you find it. It's sort of the way that <laughs> rabbit, I said. It's sort of the way that we... Uh, that we live our lives. We sort of trust authority, and when they betray us, we sort of trust them nonetheless. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that when I was driving in, there was a, an 18 to 20-year-old girl, whatever, standing on the, uh, on the sidewalk, on the street, uh, no one within a city block of her, and uh, she was wearing a mask and had a bottle of water in her hand, and she went to drink the water, and she very carefully lifted just the, an inch or two the edge of the mask, took a sip of water, and then brought it back down. Ten seconds later, she does it again and once again. Afraid of what? Afraid of the government told her to be afraid of. It's absolutely remarkable. Okay. H.L. Mencken once wrote, I believe it is better to tell the truth than a lie. I believe it is better to be free than to be a slave. And I believe it is better to know than to be ignorant. Yes, we do know the truth. We need to be free. And it's important that we know that and not forget it. Thank God that we have Seth Leibson. His never-ending pursuit of the truth means something. And today I had the privilege for sitting in for Seth. In the movie Wall Street, the actor Michael Douglas, playing the role of Gordon Gecko, barks out, I'll make you a deal. 
You stop telling lies about me, and I'll, I'll stop telling the truth about you. Well, given, given the unyielding assault on America, on Israel, and the West, it behooves proponents of Western civilization in the face of these illegitimate condemnations to continue to tell the truth. Seth Leibson does that five times a week. Today, it was once again my privilege to sit in for him. And those of you who are frequent listeners also know this. When it comes to political discourse and common sense, it is much better served when Seth offers his opinions on these matters. Thank you for having me, and goodbye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.